you very much. I am, of course, an, an Oxford man from quite some time ago. I vividly remember my first supervision with Ian Brownlee, much to lament, in which I said I wanted to work on statehood. And he said, which bit of it? I said, no, all of it. So why don't you do something on the law of the sea? <laughs> several years persuading that I was capable of working on the whole of statehood. In fact, it was less persuaded when I produced the thesis that immediately changed the rules about the length of the thesis. The 100,000 word rules which are difficult to that thesis for the thesis. On 27th of October 1999, I spoke of Scotland to the devolve at the inauguration of the Scottish Centre for International Law University of Edinburgh. Thirteen years later, the debate has moved on. The evolution is now here indefinitely for as long as the Scots don't opt for more. A clear answer to a clear question is on the agenda. And the issue is focused now on the merits of the debate, independence or not. But international law is still relevant, particularly to the consequences of the choice which the Scots elected to face before the end of 2014 consequences both for Scotland itself as well as for the rest of the UK, which I will call to avoid begging the question of our UK are being wrestled. I want to discuss these issues at all uh, without taking any position whatever on the underlying political and popular debate about what Scotland has been or should become. <coughs> Let's first take the past, the foundation myth of Great Britain. An assertive English historian, Trevor Roper, you would have guessed, referred to James I of England, James VI of Scotland, as, and I quote, the author of the name which later Scots have forced Englishmen to impose on their country. Very Trevor Ropean remark. The equivocation, equivocation in the word there is wonderful. Is their country, Great Britain, really the country of the Englishmen? in lives of English insistence been renamed by the Scots. It's more than a hint of it. The Scots, on the other hand, may, may find it hard to identify much coercion exercised by them over England at the time of the incorporating union of 1707. The point is emphasised that Trevor Roper sees the eventual union of Scotland and England of 1707 as a revised version of the Cromwellian Union of, of 1652. Of course, Scotland preserved in 1707 much of the autonomy that it lost in 1652. <coughs> 1652 was nothing less than an attempt at conquest, an attempt to submerge Scotland and the English policy. <coughs> the foundation of the Great Britain is different. So the consensual union by treaty between two countries was disappeared and replaced by a third, Great Britain, in which the identity of the two earlier ones was merged which were accordingly identical, which was accordingly identical with neither. This myth was expressed by one of the greatest of British international lawyers, Lord McNair, when he said, in 1707, England and Scotland ceased to exist as international persons and became the unitary state of Great Britain. Is that an accurate statement of the international law position? And does it matter? Answers to those questions very briefly uh, no and no. <laughs> a 
first and obvious point is that we must be aware of applying modern conceptions that past transactions needs to be judged by the law of the time. But like other statements of the intertemporal principle, this needs to be qualified. International law has had a continuous tradition since at least the 16th century. And modern international law is sufficiently familiar with debates about the status and consequence of political opinions. <coughs> we can fully place ourselves in the position of 17th century lawyers and commentators may be doubtful. But the texts and the commentaries of the time speak to us in a shared and persistent vocabulary. There's little choice but to use it. So we have to ask a number of particular questions about the British Foundation myth. First of all, were the Articles of Union of 1707 a treaty in the sense of international law? Against that, against it being a treaty, they were unilaterally amended by the Scottish Parliament after their adoption. They were only signed once by the King. They were subsequently honoured in the breach as much as the observance. There was a splendidly titled Act of Union Amendment Act of 1710. <coughs> in favour, there were early precedents of commissioners negotiated. There was a genuine negotiation. It was subsequently referred to as a treaty both in the Union with Scotland Act of 1706, the English statute, and in the Scotland Act of 1998, the British statute. Two points arise from that. Was Great Britain a persisting legal entity in 1707, a pre-existing legal entity in 1707, or were James VI and his successors pluralists? James VI, of course, denied that in emphatic and colourful language. But his proclamation of 1604, where he proclaimed himself King of Great Britain, was unconstitutional, and certainly, as he later admitted, unwise. It was not followed by his Stuart successors. The English Parliament refused to alter the title of the kingdom, and the judges advised that the change of name required parliamentary approval. True, there were continuing hints that the claim of supremacy of England over Scotland survived, what Cecil referred to in 1559 as English superiority of Scotland. This had been formally renounced on several occasions by the English Crown and would be again by Queen Elizabeth in 1568. <coughs> Contrast with Ireland, though the Poynings law was stuck, there was no reason to doubt that England and Scotland remained separate legal persons prior to 1707. Moreover, in that period, they had a distinct constitutional system, different rules of succession, affirmed by Scotland in the Succession Act of 1682. That was indeed the problem that precipitated the Act of Union. The prerogatives of war and treaty making seemed to have been different. The Act Anent Peace and War of 1703, if not strictly declaratory, was an attempt to assert a pre-existing tradition against royal challenge. There were even international relations of a kind between England and Scotland after 1603, a joint border commission, for example. And the Darien Project, which led to the, the, the immediate cause of the Union, involved a separate foreign policy for Scotland, a disastrous one. Now, of course, it might have been a treaty to start off with, but if Scotland at least ceased to exist, did it remain a treaty? We talk about the Treaty of Waitangi as continuing to exist, even though one of the Maori Confederations ceased to exist. 
But there are precedents for separate constitutional systems even in an incorporating union. For example, Poland and Lithuania, from 1569 to 1793. Or Spain and Portugal. Even James I said that his intention, well, there are differing views. James I said that his intention, I quote, was always to affect union by uniting Scotland to England and not England to Scotland. I think speaking to the English audience. <laughs> but then there is cause for concern. Section 5 of the Act of Union, the English statute, was unilateral, dealing with Scottish shipping and imposing conditions on it. Harry Hopkins' treatment of Scots treaties is, is to ignore them entirely. The English alliance with Portugal of 1373 is always said to be the oldest British treaty. And yet Scotland lived into an alliance, the old alliance with France, in 1295. General de Gaulle in 1962 said it was the oldest subsisting alliance in the world. Imagine if Britain had said that their relations with previous Angevin territories in France were the oldest subsisting territorial claims. What General de Gaulle would have said then. Grotius <coughs> said in a passage in De Rebelle Parcus if two nations be united, the rights of neither of them shall be lost, but become common. The same may be judged of kingdoms which are really and truly united, and not by a treaty of alliance or because they have but one prince. I'm going to the history in a little bit of detail, partly because it's great fun, but also because history is someone else's present, recorded. International law is continuous back to this period. We have to, you have to get inside the period in order to understand what the issues were. But they don't go away. In 1999, the, the United Kingdom government, in submission to the privileges of the House of Lords, said, and I quote, in 1706, England and Scotland were two distinct states. In that year, commissioners from each of the parliaments negotiated articles of the Union for a proposed union of England and Scotland into one state of Great Britain. That's a bit ambiguous. <coughs> Lord Hope said, in the case in 2002, the states or kingdoms of Scotland and England ceased to exist on the 1st of May, 1707. I'm not sure whether it's true, though. For example, there was no election of new, new English members of Parliament. There was an election of new Scottish members of Parliament. They arrived in London and were simply seated. Parliament didn't even prorogue. There was no change in the, in the commissions of English ambassadors to other countries. They continued under their exactly under their uh, commissions. The English Great Seal continued to be used until the Great Seal of Great Britain could be adopted. So there are elements of both, and it's not clear that the foundation myth is true. Jonathan Swift may have parodied the quote, union of kingdoms without faith or law, and referred to Great Britain as a quote, vessel with a double keel a crazy double-bottomed realm. It was far from obvious after 1707 that there was not a single keel and a single realm into which Scotland had been effectively absorbed <coughs> from an international point of view. John Daniel, a worse poet than Swift, 
and have been more accurate in his apostrophe to England. Shake hands with union, O thou mighty state, now that thou art all great Britain, and no more. He clearly didn't believe the foundation of So much of the past. I'll come back to the relevance of the past in a while. It's been said that Britain is a term with a very uncertain future. The same thing was said often enough about Canada in relation to the Quebec secession. Now it seems um, a glimmer in the eye of the older members of the Parti Quebecois. What's clear in both places is that neither the federal government, neither the federal government of Canada nor the government of the United Kingdom would prevent the province slash principality, whatever we call it, from withdrawing if there was a clear answer to a clear question in the inspired words of the Canadian Supreme Court. Let me, for the sake of argument, assume that a clear majority of the people of Scotland says yes to the clear question, do you want independence? Let's assume further that Scotland becomes independent by negotiations with Westminster. Having less prison, will Scotland have left Europe as well and have to knock through the admission? According to one view, the answer is no. Paul Scott argues that quote, the United Kingdom was created by the Treaty of Union between Scotland and England. If one party decides to withdraw from the treaty, then Scotland and England revert to their previous status as independent countries. Under international law, they would both inherit the other treaty rights and obligations of the former United Kingdom, and that includes membership of the European Community. And then it's said that the EU is different. Once territory has been blessed with admission to the EU, uh, it's like a juridical baptism. The territory stays blessed, whatever its subsequent status. <coughs> Unless the EU treaties are amended to exclude it, as they were with Greenland. But if the domestic law of the EU is different from international law, as the European Court of Justice increasingly practices, the fact remains that you enter the dwelling of the EU <coughs> by a door marked to treaty. <coughs> the underlying rules of international law so far identify what is the territory of the state for the purposes of EU membership. I stress that this issue, for all the laws that may be attached to it, is of limited practical significance. The case of Scotland would not be regarded as the same as that of Estonia or Slovakia. Scotland, having reached the Akin, would be regarded as uh, already a candidate member in the advanced status. What about the residue of Great Britain, our UK? The suggestion is that Great Britain hadn't been formed by a treaty union. The withdrawal of one part of the union would involve the extinction of the union state. <coughs> If Scotland would have to apply to join the EU and the UN, so would England and Wales. Partly solving the problem of Security Council reform. <laughs> According to Lane, I quote, there is no reason to expect that the international community would accept an English claim, implausible in United Kingdom law, to succeed to all rights and obligations of the United Kingdom to the exclusion of Scotland. Now, of course, state practice tells us otherwise. When the 26 Irish counties separated from the UK in 1922 formed the Irish Free State, it was treated just like the change of territory in the law of state succession in the UK's continuity. There's no indication in the Irish State Treaty that either party questioned the UK's continuity 
Indeed, it was premised on the first narrative of the UK continuing uninterrupted. There are countless other examples that suggest that no weight can be put on changes of name, for example. In the case of Ireland, it took five years for the UK to change its name by the Royal and Parliamentary Titles Act of 1927. But the cases that one has thought about this problem of the last 40 years, most recently Russia and former Yugoslavia. Um, Russia and Serbia uh, changed their names, but they, those changes didn't affect continuity. The question was what was Serbia or Serbia and Montenegro? That question depended upon what happened in 1992. It was a subsequent change of name. The state practice suggests that Scotland's independence would have the same outcome for the UK as the Irish Free States did in 1922. In almost all cases, the continuated state is the unit retaining the majority of the predecessor state population <coughs> in the territory. That's true of India, Malaysia, Russia, Ethiopia, and Sudan. The exception is West Pakistan, but it's an exception which proves the rule, because West Pakistan was constitutionally continuous with Pakistan, even though it was smaller than, uh, sorry, it, it's, its population was smaller than that of Bangladesh at the date of succession, its territory was somewhat larger. In all those cases, the continuated state retains substantially the same government institutions as the predecessor state. It's not suggested that all the institutions of government must continue. But even the, revolution, even the revolutionary overthrow of the governmental system does not affect state continuity. The continuity of governmental institutions is merely one aspect, but it gives rise to a particularly strong presumption of state continuity. It explains, for example, the perceived continuity of Sardinia Piedmont in the, in the Risorgimento. It can be expected that the weight of international opinion will favour recognising IUK as the continuator of the United Kingdom. The Foreign Commonwealth Office has already written that the overwhelming weight of international precedent suggests that the UK will continue to exercise the existing UK's international rights and obligations. Nonetheless, the alternative should be briefly considered because it's been suggested in Scotland that there will be two new states and not just one. It's not always clear when situations fall into this category. For example, the dual monarchy of Austria and Hungary uh, was separated at the, after the First World War. It was regarded as consistent with the continuation of Austria and Hungary as separate persons. Obviously, there are important differences with that situation. Two examples that are usually cited are Czechoslovakia in 1992-3 and the SFLY. Czechoslovakia was done by agreement. Uh, and it was agreed that Czechoslovakia would cease to exist <coughs> and two new states would come into existence. Not, neither of the states claimed to continue the identity of the former Czechoslovakia, nor did any other state question its extinction. There might have been a different result in the absence of agreement. The Czech Republic had 66% of Czechoslovakia's population, 62% of its territory, 71% of its economic resources. 
and there is a bit of practice which suggests that the Czech, the Czech Republic was expected to pick up the bill if the Soviet Republic failed to do it. So the Czechoslovakia does not detract from the general presumption in favour of state continuity despite changes in territory. The SFRY is a very complicated case, but it's critical that the SFRY was in a state of armed conflict throughout the relevant period. The international community's refusal to accept the claim to continuity of the FRY had much to do with the concern that the conflict be treated as international rather than domestic. The Arbitration Commission of the former Yugoslavia, the Badminton Committee, endorsed that view. The International Court took longer to do so and a rather tortuous jurisprudence that eventually did. The contrast with the breakup of the USSR is stuck. In both cases, it was the constituent units of the Federation that declared independence, leaving the remaining constituent units intact and impartial control of the, federal, the former federal government. In the case of Russia, of course, Russia claimed continuity after an initial claimed <coughs> discontinuity, and everyone else agreed. <coughs> Though superficially comparable to the Czech Republic, our UK would differ in that it would claim continuity and has already done so. And though superficially comparable to the FRY, it would differ again and there's no obvious reason such as conflict other states or international organizations to dispute the claim. I turn to a slightly different issue, which is the question of the reversion of the Scottish state to the situation that existed before 1707. Could an independent Scotland be considered not as a new state, but as a continuation of the pre-1707 Scottish state? And what consequences would that have? I would not surprise you to learn that Scotland in 1707 was not a member of the European Union. <coughs> the authorities on reversion are not straightforward. There are many meanings of the word reversion, and most of them are applicable here. The claims have occasionally been made to continuity despite substantial discontinuity. Croatia, from time to time, claims continuity with Croatia in the 19th century. Though their formal position, I think, is different. Most of the claims to continuity are claims to continuity despite illegal annexation. The Baltic states, for example, are obviously against situations completely in absent here. The most absent example is the United Arab Republic. We have to see that in retrospect as the case of a failed federal arrangement which hit substantially separate government entities under an umbrella, accepted by the rest of the world while it lasted, but it only lasted for three years. <coughs> so assertions of state continuity made after long periods of time may be accepted <coughs> for the sake of good manners, diplomatically, but they seem not to have any consequences. The idea that the Kingdom of Bohemia and Moravia was continued with Czechoslovakia despite a gap from, 19, from 1620 to 1918 is generally regarded as without incidents. The pre-1707 Scottish state is comparable to the Kingdom of Bohemia and Moravia 
claim continuity would have to overcome a gap of more than three centuries. And it can do so from an affectional point of view, but whether from a legal point of view, it must be doubtful. Indeed, it's, it's not at all clear what Scotland would have to gain from asserting a legal claim of continuity. It would make a difference to the subsisting minor territorial disagreements between the UK, the RUK, and Scotland. Or indeed, as far as we can see, or anything else, except possibly the alliance of 1295. It might verify General de Gaulle's remark will ask you then. I turn now to the position in international organisations. Putting it generally, the position is quite clear that the that new states do not succeed to membership in international organisations unless the rules of the organisation so provide or the practice of the organisation tolerates cases uh, of succession, which in general, general terms the United Nations does not. I've already said that the, the position of Syria was rather sui generis. Article 4 of the Vienna Convention on State Succession with respect to treaties refers the matter to the particular constitutional rules of the organisation. That, at least that article of the Vienna Convention seems to be the current international law. In 1947, the General Assembly pronounced a general rule, something they probably wouldn't do these days, in relation to these situations. It's presumed that a state which is a member of the organisation does not cease to be a member simply because its constitution or its frontier has been subjected to changes. Because a new state had to be admitted. And they went on to say that each case must be judged according to its merits. So the conclusions so far are one, that it's very doubtful that the foundation myth of the United Kingdom is actually true as a matter of international law. At least the position is entirely open. Secondly, it doesn't matter. Because even if Scotland and England merged and disappeared in 1707, our UK would still be the continuator of the United Kingdom. Be relieved about that because it saves you from going into the history of the 16th and 17th century. <coughs> Thirdly, that the United Kingdom would, our UK would continue UK membership of international organisations. We turn now to the European Union. It's true that the European Union is a new legal order of international law. The word of requires a thought in that formulation. But internally, the relations of the member states and their peoples in matters covered by the European treaties are governed by European law, as determined by the European Court of Justice, and not by general international law, at least not in normal circumstances. The question whether a state is a member of the EU has so far been treated as a matter of international law, just as the question of the territory, the extent of the territory of the state is. But what would the ECJ say now? There's no clear precedent. No state has ever withdrawn from the EU. In the case of Algeria and Greenland are idiosyncratic and I won't spend time on them. <coughs> Now will depend obviously on the attitude of the other EU member states. But it also depends on the position that 
because justice will take. We now have to also cope with Article 50 of the Treaty of Lisbon, which, deal, which provides expressly for the possibility of withdrawal. If anything, that reconfirms the UK position that it will simply continue as a member with necessary adjustments in relation to members, the membership of the uh, European Parliament and quotas and things of that sort. For the UK to continue as a state after Scottish independence as a matter of general international law, if somehow to be seen as withdrawing automatically from the EU, conflicts with Article 50 and conflicts with general conceptions of what is likely to happen. This adds to the overwhelming likelihood that our UK will continue to be a member of the EU. Of course, it will be affected in various ways, but they can be negotiated. Scotland's position on the EU will depend on the EU's legal order. So far, there are no rules of the EU's legal order in this respect, but when EU nationality was introduced, that too was an empty void, rapidly being filled by the court. European officials, the two, have said that the matter is dealt with by international law and not by European law. But McCormick has argued that as a matter of European law, a territory cannot sever itself unilaterally from the constitutional jurisdiction of the European Union, simply by means of the change of the constitutional relationships with the member state, citing agreement. By contrast, Romano Prodi, as president of the Commission, said the European community of the European Union had been established by the relevant treaties among the member states. <coughs> when a part of the territory of a member state ceases to be a part of the state, the treaties will no longer apply to that territory. And Jose Manuel Barroso said that joining the European Union is a procedure of international law. David Edwards, former British judge on the European Court of Justice, has questioned those statements. He says that it is entirely likely that the ECJ will say that there is a constitutional relationship between individual members, individual citizens of the EU and the EU, which can't be severed by changes in the state relations. Now, there's first, a, there's first a, a complication in that it's quite likely that numbers and perhaps very many Scots will retain our UK nationality as well as acquiring Scots nationality. And that will muffle the effect of the loss of the EU membership status if that's what happens. Nonetheless, the status of future Scottish nationals who do not retain their UK nationality raises questions. It's conceivable that the ECJ might attach independent significance to EU citizenship as an individual right. But this might influence the court in its approach to Scottish independence. That suggests that within the, the EU legal order, the UK and perhaps other member states would be required to negotiate in good faith to preserve the EU's the EU citizens' current rights pursuant to the principle of sincere cooperation. 
each of them might take three positions. First of all, it might require UK to negotiate in advance the terms of Scottish independence so as not to deprive EU citizens of their rights. It might conceivably say that the UK was not competent to provide unilaterally for Scottish independence prior to the completion of those negotiations. Or it might take the more radical view that Scotland's automatic succession to the EU is possible or even required by the EU legal order. Despite these arguments, it's difficult to see how the ECJ could work around the need to incorporate Scotland into the EU treaties and to renegotiate its position relative to other member states. I remember in the Mox case, when we were having as a tribunal to speculate what the EU might do in relation to the situation of an interstate claim between European Union members under the World Sea Treaty. I went and asked Professor Alan Dashwood, who's Professor of European Law at Cambridge, what the ECJ might do, and he said, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> what the ECJ might do is something we will find out when the ECJ has done it. The present expectations of the Commission seems to be that Scotland will have to accede to the EU as a State. Barroso, when asked about an independent Catalan state, said, in accordance with Article 20 of the TFEU, EU membership is additional to and does not replace national citizenship. In the hypothetical event of secession of the part of the EU member state, the solution will have to be found and negotiated within the international legal order. Well, if Former Judge Edwards is right, that's wrong. Although speaking as an outsider, I can't do more than speculate. Given the difficulties with automatic accession, the third option I mentioned, it seems probable that if the ECJ were to infer any relevant consequences from the motion of EU citizenship, that would not lead to automatic succession, but would constrain how and when the UK could grant Scotland independence in accordance with the EU legal order. Of course, there might be a distinction between the position of public international law and the position within the EU. Public international law is the proper law for answering questions of state continuity and succession outside of the EU. Even if the ECJ were to take a different approach, that would not affect the status of the UK and Scotland generally. It would only affect their position within the EU legal order. But if the ECJ was to take one of the approaches discussed above, in practice that might well influence the position of the UK and other states and organs more generally. It would probably serve to reinforce any efforts by the parties to resolve the problem of Scotland's accession to the EU by negotiations in advance of the Thank you very much.